3: The year is 1986 and you have 13 hours in which to listen to this podcast or your baby brother becomes one of us
4: forever.
3: The movie Labyrinth.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to
3: Unspooled. I'm Paul Scheer, writer, director, actor, a lover of film, joined, as always, by my friend Amy Nicholson, a film critic and someone who also shares an intense pain with me, which is not having her NBA team anywhere near the finals this year of the NBA playoffs. And that's okay, because we can take that disappointment and we can turn it into... Film discussion and really getting into these films that are dark, and I'm glad we're talking about a dark film today because I think both of our spirits are darkened uh, by not having our teams here. Obviously, I've had more time to deal with it than you, but you know, I, uh, I I feel like you know we're we're in the mood for something a little bit darker.
2: You know, if I have learned anything watching Labyrinth, it's that you can't always get everything you want, and life is not fair.
3: Life is not fair. And Amy, uh, a belated happy birthday. I wish it to you in real life, but you have celebrated the year. So I'm, I'm hoping that in our conversation today, we see that we see that year, we see that maturity pop through on this episode. I don't know what I'm going to get, but I feel like I'm going to get a different Amy, an older Amy, a different perspective. That, that's what I'm, <laughs> I'm putting that on you. But you know, today is a movie that's really interesting because I think for many people, this is a film that. Defines them, uh, maybe even is an avenue to which they found their own sexuality. And to others, they kind of just think it's trash.
2: Ouch. Or, I guess, in the words of the movie, it's all junk. It's all junk. Yet, this is a movie that every time I even just see the poster, it stirs up a lot of complicated emotions in me good and bad, confusing, maelstroms. Oh my, how do I feel about anything in this? From Jennifer Connolly to David Bowie. And yet it is a film that sticks to my soul much the way that The Dark Crystal, well, the film before this did. A, a film that I don't even think I've seen The Dark Crystal in full in years. But if I picture it in my head, I immediately go to a very strange and musty place where I am scared and titillated and excited all at once.
3: And this is truly, I, I love our friends over at the Blank Check podcast, a Blank Check film because we have a filmmaker at the top of their game. This is Jim Henson, who, you know, took a little bit of a beating on the Dark Crystal. People didn't like it as much as he thought they would, but then he makes Muppets Take Manhattan and Sesame Street Follow That Bird, and he's like, okay, here's my shot. And he shoots his shot to basically do one of the weirdest, most personal films. And I feel like this is a great moment because it might be one of the last times... You get to make a $25 million movie that is so aggressively weird.
2: I'm glad this movie exists, Paul. I just want to get that out here now. And I want to say, I'm glad to get a chance to talk about this to you. I just want to jump into it, man, because there is a lot to discuss.
3: Yes, Amy, now look into my crystal ball as we unspool it. Owl! The year is 1986, and Jim Henson feels like all the work that he and his team has put into the dark children's movie, The Dark Crystal, deserved just a little bit more appreciation. You know, maybe people would have liked it better if, I don't know, it had humans in it. So he decides to follow up The Dark Crystal with Labyrinth. It's a fantasy tale with a few human beings, a young girl named Sarah, played by 14-year-old Jennifer Connelly her baby brother Toby, played by a real baby named Toby, and the Goblin King, who has taken her baby brother, played by none other than David Bowie.
2: But it is still a dark and twisted kids' puppet movie. Like To get Toby back, Sarah has to explore this bizarre maze where she meets hundreds and hundreds of even more bizarre creatures. Living hands, sentient rocks, talking worms, this giant furry beast named Ludo, a tricky goblin named Coggle, who could not decide if he's going to help her or hurt her. Both Bowie and Connolly had to figure out how to act pretty much alone in scenes against giant puppets, which was a real challenge. The whole thing was actually kind of scary for everyone. I mean, even without Bowie wandering around in tight pants, taunting Connelly's Sarah to feel emotions that she has never felt.
3: George Lucas produces Labyrinth, Terry Jones of Monty Python, and Elaine May work on the script. Brian Froud and his wife, Wendy, head up the puppet team. And it is spectacular. The movie cost $25 million and was released as a very big deal. When it premiered in London, the puppets met Prince Charles and Princess Diana.
4: Yes, Ludo is one of the team of monsters or strange companions that goes with Sarah, Jennifer Connolly, through the labyrinth to Goblin City. A curtsy. Oh, curtsy. Only a director of Sir Richard Attenborough's stature, I think, could have got that monster to curtsy to a princess.
3: And then it bombed. Yes, it bombed. It opened on June 27th, 1986, at number eight. Number eight on the box office charts beneath The Karate Kid Part Two, Back to School, Legal Eagles, Ruthless People, Running Scared, Top Gun, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. All bangers, if you ask me. The week after, did it go up? Word of mouth help? Nope. It went down even further. It dropped to 13 out of the top 10 in the first seven days. Yikes.
2: Labyrinth was received so badly that Jim Henson got depressed. His son, Brian, said that he went to the south of France to wallow, and he wrote. Did he write another movie? No. Jim Henson wrote letters to his children to be read after his death. (laughs) And he planned out his funeral. That was how bad the post-Labyrinth feelings were. He asked at his funeral, by the way, that nobody wear black. He asked that a Dixieland band play when the saints go marching in. Andy asked his son Brian to read a letter to people saying that they should, quote, please watch out for each other and love and forgive everybody. And all of this actually came to pass a lot faster than anybody would have predicted because four years later, Jim Henson died at the age of 53 of a sudden illness that he thought was the flu, but it wasn't. Uh, He never made another movie. He never got to see The Labyrinth Resurrection, its ascendance as a touchstone movie for a generation. So what was in the zeitgeist in June of 1986 when Labyrinth came out? Well, it was a Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald duet about a man and woman who are alone, kind of like Connolly and Bowie. They're shot alone in the video, very separately. I know that's a stretch, but also adding to this, who has Patti LaBelle toured with more than anybody? It is a band called Maze. Here's Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, and on my own...
3: I gotta say, gonna be honest, that when I first saw this movie as a kid in 1986, I agreed with the critics. I did not like this movie. I thought it was weird. I thought it was not fun. I wanted my Muppets to be fun. I loved The Great Muppet Caper. I loved The Muppets Take Manhattan. This was dark. It was the way I felt when I saw The Dark crystals. like, what is this? Isn't puppetry supposed to be like funny? And this is just weird. It's making me feel weird. I, I haven't felt the same way with Willow. Like, it's supposed to be Star Wars, right? But it's boring. I, I I couldn't wrestle.
2: Return to Oz?
3: Return to Oz. I felt the same way. Yeah. I think maybe I lived in this sheen of not liking anything that was
2: steampunk or dark. I mean, you weren't alone. Most of these movies were flops. They were <laughs> right. flops that made big impressions on kids like me. Black Cauldron 2. Well, you see, like I
3: was also a kid who loved like, never-ending story. I loved that. And there were types of kid movies that I liked. I mean, Goonies, I love Goonies. You know, I liked a certain type of darkness, but this, I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong way as a kid. You know, I'm about, you know, 10 years old when I'm seeing this or a little younger, and I just didn't ever want to rewatch them. So I haven't watched Labyrinth in years. I mean, really decades. And rewatching it, I was in awe of this movie. It's so imaginative. It's so bizarre. And I'm mad at myself for all the years that I kind of took this out of my movie vocabulary or just even could reference or think about it because it's so huge, it feels like, and inspiring so much more after it.
2: That's fascinating. I didn't realize you'd somehow managed to not rewatch it in all of these years because to me, growing up girl, perhaps this is a movie that has always been around in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, even even just as much like in scenes, slumber parties, rewatching things, friends being like, are you going to the Labyrinth Ball? Here's what we're wearing. Blah, 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 blah. I have never been to the Labyrinth Ball. But it's just been there because images of this movie have been so omnipresent through my entire life that rewatching it in full as a film felt also new to me because I haven't done that in a while because it has just been something I've been steeped in for so long. And it really struck me on this watch that it's different than I remembered it being in that. OK, I just have kind of a question for you that I'm going to throw out right up at the top. I have always seen this movie as a story of this beautiful, amazing, wonderful girl named Sarah who goes on this adventure and she's very like heroic and brave and beautiful and David Bowie thinks she's pretty and she has to be like no 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 I just love my brother and I have to get him home and I had forgotten a couple of things which is number one Sarah is not perfect Sarah is such a mess Sarah opens this film just being like this melodramatic dramatic teen girl getting into a fight with her stepmom who I would say in this scene is being completely reasonable
5: Sarah you're an hour late I said I'm sorry Please let me finish Your father and I go out very rarely. I go out every single weekend. And I ask you to babysit only if it won't interfere with your plans.
2: Well, how do you know? You don't know what my plans are. You don't even ask me anymore. Well, I assume
5: you'd tell me if you had a date. I'd like it if you had a date. You you should have dates at your age. Ah, Sarah, you're home. We were worried about you. I can't
2: do anything right, can I?
5: She treats me like a wicked stepmother in a fairy story no matter what I say.
2: And suddenly I'm watching this movie and I'm like, oh, you were so young when you watched this that you just idealized Jennifer Connelly and you didn't realize what the story is about, that the story is not about like a perfect heroine exploring a fantasy universe. It's about this like unhinged modern teen girl who's like angry and hates everything and is very short tempered and has a lot of problems. I mean, a girl just like goes on huge rants at the beginning of this film about her hatreds, like this melodramatic teen wannabe actress that she is.
5: someone has been in my room again I hate that
2: I hate it. I hate you I hate you and I have to say absorbing this very deeply from an adult perspective changed so much of this movie to me in this watch in a way I really see like the through line between this movie and the Little mermaid that comes up a year later about these like teenage girls with so many emotions growing up and making a lot of mistakes and In this modern era where our Little Mermaid gets reworked, where Little Mermaid is like actually pretty perfect and doesn't have crazy crushes on guys and just wants to explore. And is a really level-headed teen girl, I was so happy to go back and watch Labyrinth and be like, yes, movies for young adolescents can have characters who have tons of contradictory and self-destructive emotions. And that made me really happy. Well, I think
3: at the root of this movie, if you were to pick it apart, there is this underlying message here, which is you are in control of how people treat you, you aren't at the whim of somebody else's desires, right? I think that that's part of it, and part of that is also navigating through this complex world of a teen or as a child to understand like where your power is. When we first meet her character, she's so put upon by everybody else, but we, the audience, and maybe now because we're adults too, we're seeing them as being level-headed. We're like yeah, they're normal. You are making this a way bigger deal. The mom's essentially like, hey, if you want to go out on a date, we're we're down. We're cool. We'll get a babysitter. But if you're going to be home, you can watch the kid. Like, that's not too crazy to say. But yet she's making enemies of all these people like you're putting me in this position. You're giving me this. And I think that the message, while a little bit more adult and complex, is you have the power. I mean, it's 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 represented in that line, the line that she can't remember. We open up the film with that moment of her not remembering this line, which we learn later is you have no power over me. And then when she finally says it, that's how she defeats the villain at the end. Just that's it. As simply as that. It's a mixed, it's a mixed bag, obviously, because parents do have power over kids. But I do believe that in the outside world, you know, whether it is you know, somebody who is wanting you for nefarious purposes, like David Bowie's uh, character in this, or if it's somebody in school, like, you can free yourself from, A, being what people call you, or having to go along with something that you don't feel comfortable or confident in by saying, you have no power over me. It's it's probably the most adult thing that we've talked about in coming-of-age films on this podcast. I mean, we've talked about a bunch, but this does seem like more of a a headier notion.
2: Yeah, there's this arc that she goes on in a way where she grows up or comes of age by realizing that she's not this, like, passive victim in her own life, which is funny because she doesn't come across passive at all. She's, like, always yelling and screaming and throwing tantrums and, like, literally summoning goblins to take away her baby brother. But finding out... I want to say her power, but I don't love the phrase her power because I think so many times when a character finds her power, mm-hmm. it's like weak sauce. It's like, oh, your grandpa was so-and-so, therefore you're powerful. Like, what? No. You know, or, or believe in yourself and you have power. No, it's not that type of power. It's the power of just recognizing that you're proactive, which is interesting because she thinks that she is a proactive person. You know, she's going out after, like, acting parts. She is, you know— obviously a person who, like, loves fairy tales, ideas about, like, teen fairy tales and heroines. She's even got, like, a little mermaid poster on her wall. But it's almost as though she's rereading or misreading fairy tales and what, like, female power is. One of the things that I think really becomes her theme in this movie is she's always being like, that's not fair. This isn't fair. You're not fair. You know, she's whining about things being fair so much that David Bowie even calls her out on it here. How are you
1: enjoying my labyrinths?
0: It's a piece of cake.
5: Oh, Really? Then how about upping the stakes? Hmm? It's not fair. You say that so often. I wonder what your basis for comparison is.
2: And, and the dark message of it, in a way, is like, yeah, it's not fair. So what? Suck it up. Suck it up, sweetheart. And I think that that is something that we
3: don't really force on our kids. And this is what I'm saying about it being a heady concept. It's like, yeah, sometimes things suck. Sometimes you just have to go and do it, but you can also take responsibility for how you want to do it, right? Just because it sucks, you can choose to put your head up, hold yourself high, do the job well, or you can put your head down and complain, whatever you want to do. Like there is a way of how do I get through this hard time? And I think this movie is really asking, like, who do you want to be? Take responsibility for your own actions, regardless of the outside world. You can control how you act. Which, in a weird way, (laughs) is a very parental thing to say, right? Like, I don't care that you want to see your friends. You have to make sure that you do your homework. or You know, there's something about it that's a very adult idea that's being put on a kid. But I also feel like, it's maybe the best lesson you could impart on a teenager. And I feel like that's what we're really seeing here. Like she's a teenage girl and, you know, the final fight scene being in this like MC Escher staircase room, and I don't even call it a fight scene, call it a song, a number, you know, it's the confusing nature of the world. Like, who is this? What do they want? You know, she wants her brother back, but she's also annoyed by her brother. This guy is kind of flirting with her, but while she's, and you know, intrigued by him, she's not really in the same place as he is. There's so many wants on her. And, you know, she sticks to the one true want, which is she could have whatever she wants. She could live in her fantasy or fairy tale, but she knows deep down that she needs to rescue her brother. Like, that is what is right and good. Even though in the moment, it would be great to get rid of this brother, who, in some of the descriptions of this movie, it's like, <laughs> I, I see the brother... As, like, her annoying brother. It's like, that's a straight-up baby. There's nothing <laughs> annoying about that kid. That That is a child who is crying because he is a baby. And the fact that she even comes in and reprimands a baby for taking a stuffed animal, I'm like, whoa, chill out. It's a baby. It's not even—it's barely a toddler, which makes it even more frightening when David Bowie has this baby in his lap or the baby is surrounded by, like, these goblins. Like, that is probably one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Like, just a baby in PJs surrounded by a room of fucking goblins and is (laughs) frightened out of its mind.
2: I think, perversely, the baby seems happier with the goblins than with his sister, He's like, my sister's scary, and she's yelling. These goblins are pretty fun.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases.
2: Have you ever seen any of the videos of the actual baby on the set? Because no. Oh, they're great. They're great. I should tell you the backstory of this baby, by the way, which is, you know, the animator, Brian Ford, that we mentioned and his wife. Well, oh, here, I'll just let them talk about it in this clip.
3: After
4: working on the film Dark Crystal that was just pure puppets, Jim and I decided that we'd like to introduce a human element. We felt that a baby would be an ideal thing to play off against the, the creature's. I sat down and started to paint this picture. About six months later, my son Toby was conceived. And the strange thing was that he turned out to look just like the baby that I'd drawn. And he was the baby that we used in the film.
0: Hi,
5: Toby.
4: You know who's in the hole? Toby. Your mommy.
2: Toby. Toby.
5: Wow. Toby.
2: Yeah, he summoned basically this baby in his imagination, then wound up giving birth to it, And then this baby grows up around puppets. So it's like hanging out with all these puppets like, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, the strangest thing was he looked exactly like the painting of the baby. The bride
2: had painted far before Toby was even conceived. Mm -hmm. And then actually this kid, Toby, grows up to be a puppeteer. He works on like the Dark Crystal TV show. I love this idea of a kid just being like, I am surrounded by all of this chaos and I am born to this job. That baby was born to be this baby. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in like the pre-production stories of this movie where they're like, babies are not agreeing with us. Like David Bowie, when he was doing the song, you know, the, the dance Magic Dance Number, yeah. he wanted a baby to duet with him, but the baby oh, just did not work out in the recording studio.
3: In the recording studio, the baby i picked, one of the backing singers, uh, Diva, had this cute little baby um, who couldn't put two gurgles together. <laughs> And it wouldn't
4: work for me i mean it just it wouldn't go i kicked it i did everything to make it scream but it wouldn't it was gonna
3: it really buttoned its lips so i ended up doing the gurgles. so i'm the baby on that track as well yeah i don't think a baby's gonna be able to duet with you I, I think that that's pretty much low on the baby spectrum uh to duet. maybe if you keep the mics open you can get a little bit of an intro but besides that i'm thinking about this more and more because i really you know i'm just fresh off of watching the movie the, the, the stench bog, right? The farting uh, shit bog that everyone is afraid of going into. If you make a mistake or if you get punished, you have this stench that stays on you forever. It's a really interesting idea because if we're talking about taking responsibility for yourself and how you live your life, that stench bog is truly like the decisions that you make may affect how people perceive you forever. And that's something that I think a lot of teenagers feel. Like, oh, this is defining me. And it might just define you for a high school. But I do think that that's really interesting. Like the idea of making a mistake that you can't get rid of. It is, the stench is on you. Be careful of what you do and what you agree to because you might wind up in the bob.
5: Ow! Watch it! You step in this stuff and you stink forever.
3: I mean, you basically have uh, an asshole that is just farting. Like, that's one of the things that we see in this bog. It's like an open, it's, you know. It is gross. It's gross. And I think that here, it really works for what they're trying to do. And then, yes, when they're jumping over the rocks, (laughs) it's like... (laughs) You know, that, that little fart thing. I mean, I think that that's also... When the was like, it smell bad. I think it's part and parcel of a kid's movie, right? Like, you have to keep on bringing kids in. And I think that that's important. I think that that's what Dark Crystal didn't do. And rewatching this, there is so much humor here. I'm blown away to know that Elaine May is behind this movie. But there is a really interesting spin here. It feels very much to me like Wizard of Oz, you know, I think that the parallels here are giant. You know, Dorothy has similarities to our character that Jennifer Connelly plays. You know, it's this moment of growing up. It's this moment of finding who is on your side and trusting people who look different or you might perceive as enemies at first. It's like the idea also of treat others the way that you would like them to treat you. You know, I love that moment where she's talking to the worm, the British worm, and the worm's like, don't go there, go that way. And then she goes that way, and then the worm is able to just speak out loud and say like, oh, wow, she went that way. She'd go right to the castle. Hi,
5: hey, hang on. Thank you. That was incredibly helpful. But don't go that way. What was that? I said, don't go that way. Never
1: go that way. Oh, thanks. Good. If she'd have kept on going down that way, she'd have gone straight to that castle.
3: You know, in that moment, I think it kind of sums up the entire movie because she's lost. She's asking for help, but she's not taking the time to explain exactly what she needs. Like, she is looking at the immediacy, but not, like, the long term. Like, hey, I can't have tea with you. I can't stop. I have to keep on going, going, going. And if I actually connected with you... We could be more powerful together. And I think this movie, you see it all over the place now, looking at it from this perspective of how do you traverse teen
2: life? That's totally true. Because so much of what she maybe doesn't even totally learn here, but so much of what we see her needing to learn is to communicate clear and be patient with people. You know, just these, like, little niceties of human behavior, of how to be, like, a grown-up talking to another grown-up about, like, figuring something out in this world. And yet, what I think works so well about this movie is so much of that just takes place in the subtext. Like, there's never a moment where she goes, oh, boy, oh, boy, if only I'd learned to talk to people. You know, she doesn't actually ever come to that realization, but it's in the movie for us to see. And I appreciate that it works on that level. She literally
3: asks the... the the bridge keeper, right? Oh, well, can we cross, right? Yeah, she, like, corrects herself a little bit. You're right. You know, and he's like, yeah. Like, and, but also, I think what's really funny about this is we all are living this world in which we are believing that we have to act one way, like the, those stone gods who are, beware, go back, you're, you know, and it's like, oh, shut up. It's like, well, I'm sorry. I haven't gotten a chance to do it yet. Beware, beware,
5: Soon will be too late. Yeah, don't pay any attention to them. They're just false alarms. You get a lot of them in the labyrinth, especially when you're on the right track.
1: Oh, no, you're not. Oh, shut up. Sorry, just doing
5: my job. Well, you don't have to do it to us. Beware, Fuzzle. Just forget it. Oh, please. I haven't said it for such a long time. Oh, all right. But don't expect a big reaction. No, 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 of course not. the path you will take will lead to sudden
3: I love that moment, you know, where it's like they're they're also acting out what people expect of them. And when you flip the script on them, you actually get something better than playing into what is perceived about them. Ah, Amy, this movie is blowing my mind. I love it.
2: Yeah. What really, I think, hits me about this movie is just how much of it works on this sort of churning level inside of my gut. Yeah. It like lets me sort through the emotions that I feel when I watch this movie, which are so complicated. You know, I have so many weirdly, strangely complicated feelings about this movie, you know, that it's in a way, like, especially the Jennifer Connolly and David Bowie flirtatious dynamic of it all, Mm. which is so fascinating to me because it really kind of captures that feeling of being like a 14 year old, 15 year old girl. And suddenly getting this churn in your stomach of realizing that adult men are looking at you differently and what do you do about it. Yeah, You know, it's, it's described sometimes, you know, being like of a slightly older generation, it was described as like, oh, you're a young woman with new power. You know, that was how we yeah. talked about it in the nineties. We'd probably talk about it a little differently now, but that feeling of like oh, here is a new element of who I am as a person. And I do not know how to navigate this. And it is like being lost in some confusing maze. And it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. I mean, it's
3: also like a little date rapey too, right? I mean, because here's this older man who is giving her what she wants, but also, you know, playing a little hard to get. And like, I can give you everything. I can give you your fantasy. I can create this thing, but she's smart enough... To realize that she doesn't really want that, you know, but she eats yeah. this peach. She goes into this moment of this, you know, she's kind of drugged, you know. I, I don't think it's fully there, but I think there's elements of that. Like, he's drugging her to fall in love with him. And, and you know, does she want to break out of that spell? I mean, it's up to her.
2: And he's talking like an emotionally abusive boyfriend, you know. I'm exhausted from living up to your expectations. Whoa, you know. Yeah. I ask for so little. Just let me rule you. <laughs> like oh my god right you know fear me love me do as i say and i'll be your slave that is absolute like textbook emotional abuse 101
3: well he's taking out his little balls to uh to show her like hey isn't it sexy like my balls and uh and then it really she's, is magical
2: <laughs> ball magic
3: <laughs> i love that crystal ball
2: okay well you know that intro to you know the song the you remind me of the babe thing right here you remind me of the babe.
3: babe, babe with the
5: power, with power. power of voodoo. Do you?
2: you do They're right. remind
5: me of the babe. <laughs> a goblin babe. It's
2: an, it's an allusion to this other movie with Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. It's called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. I have never seen this movie, but the setup of the movie is that Cary Grant, for some reason that I found very hard to understand reading the summary about it is forced to start dating this teenage girl. But this, remind me of the babe thing is a running joke that they have in this movie. So it is kind of a callback to this idea of like older guy, younger girl, what are we all doing here? I don't really know.
5: Hey, you remind me of a man. What man? The man with the power. What power? The power of hoodoo. Hoodoo. You do.
2: Do what? remind me of a man. What man? Man with the power. Good morning. I mean, and all of this stuff is actually displayed even further in the book. Book because they did mm. write an adaptation that went along with this, and right. you can see hints of it here really subtly. But in the book, the whole subtext is you know we know that this is her stepmom, right? Very clear. She treats me like I'm a fairy set mom. Right. You can get glimpses of who her mom is if you look really closely in the margins of the film. Like she's got newspaper clippings of her mom in her bedroom mirror. She's got that notebook that's like a scrapbook of her mom's clippings. Right. And if you look at it super closely, you can pick up on this detail of a story. Her mom is not dead. This is not one of those fairy tales where her mom is dead. Her mom is very much alive. Her mom is an actress. Her mom left her family and is having in affair with this on-again, off-again co-star of hers who, in the pictures, is David Bowie. And when you look at the pictures closely, this figure of blonde David Bowie manhood is this force that broke apart her family and, in some way, this young girl is trying to figure out, like, is that the life that's right for me, too? You know, she wants to be an actress just like her mom. And in the book, she actually meets this guy. There's, like, a scene where she talks to him. His name is Jeremy. Jared. Right. Jeremy. She has kind of a strange crush on him because he speaks French. He buys her an evening gown. He tells her she's beautiful. And then in one of her fantasies, he kisses her and she's completely disgusted by this. And she has kind of a wake-up moment of like, I don't want this. This is not my life. And I will say this with the full backdrop of having an experience being a teenage girl, going to an all-girls high school. When you are this age, you are insane. And the crushes that we had on our older male teachers who were not crushable in the slightest, and you get past that age and you think, oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't ruin my life. Right. That relief you feel when you break out of this fugue that is being a teenager trying to figure out what you should have a crush on. I understand this completely. Completely, completely, completely on such a terrifying level. And I like seeing it recognized in film.
3: Well, there's something interesting too because the way that Bowie is dressed, and he's a great choice for this character, is he straddles a line of things that are masculine and feminine. Right. There's a safety in the way that he is dressed, you know, blouses and and a little bit more Nate makeup. Right. He
2: kind of looks like a crazy great
3: aunt. Yes. But at the same time, he is packing, you know, packing some heat down there. I mean, you use those pants don't leave much to the imagination, you know, and uh, I
2: think Warwick Davis accused him of putting socks on his crotch. But I also don't think that's true. I think he was kidding.
3: But it's out there for everybody to see. There is something about also being blamed for Like, it's like, oh, you're making me, like you said, you're making me act like this. And I just read that Paris Hilton book, which I really enjoyed. She talked about this idea about these adults, you know, who these teachers who took advantage of that too. There are teachers who take advantage of that, play on that idea. I, I went to a school where I saw that as well. It's like, it's creepy and he's creepy. And this is, you know, this is not like a a prince charming. I think most of the movies that we've talked about, there is a prince charming here, you know, and and in many ways, this is a Willy Wonka character with sexuality added to it. Willy Wonka is the eccentric character, but here it's eccentric and sexual, and I feel like that is you don't even know how you're feeling, and I think that that's why maybe I didn't like this movie as a kid too. It, it is, I, what am I watching? You know, I don't know what I'm watching. I don't, and I and I feel like people probably miss the subtext because they're too busy looking at like little cannon muppets or you know door knocker muppets. And I'm calling them all muppets, and that's a I shouldn't call. It, they should be called puppets. Uh, and they're they're so interesting, but it's like you're looking at something so associated with youth and childhood and Sesame Street, and then the themes are way more complex. And I think people probably had a hard time trying to break that apart. And in a weird way, I think what I always understood from this movie is like, oh, David Bowie's so cool. He's so interesting. But the audience is falling into that same trap, being kind of lured in by this weirdo guy. And I think that David Bowie is very aware of what he's doing here. I feel like the casting on this is, is fantastic. The only thing I want to say bad about David Bowie is that at one point they give him a microphone uh, for a musical number, which really was odd. You don't need to put a microphone <laughs> in his hand. We, we can embrace the idea of, just, is he really singing? I guess in that world, he's really wanting to perform. I, I don't know what that was, but that that's the only thing I'm going to dig on as far as David Bowie's performance in here. I feel like that was his choice. Give me a microphone. <laughs> it's a musical. You don't need a microphone.
2: Let me be a rock star. Let me be yeah. a rock star. <laughs> and it's funny because he's so perfect for this, but Jim Henson had the had his door open to the idea of many different rock stars.
4: When we first started to write this film, we had this evil goblin king, and then somewhere quite early on, we said, "What if? What if he were uh, a, a rock singer, a contemporary figure?" And uh, and then we said, "Who?" And we said Michael Jackson, Sting, David Bowie. See, I mean, there are only a few people that you would think of, and David was immediately the one we wanted.
2: I mean, this movie with Michael Jackson, the idea of that makes my head explode right now. Yeah. But, you know, this was still also the period where Michael Jackson was taking Drew Barrymore to what was it like the Oscars?
3: But by the way, Michael Jackson is a perfect level of safe, but dangerous, right? Like, I think at that point, you don't want to feel and I think this is, you know, where these teachers who do abuse students can get in. They are safe. And Michael Jackson is safe right? And feels like he gets her. He gets the cosplay girl. He gets what she's after. Not only does he get it, he lives that life. It's really interesting that he puts himself down on her level in a way.
2: This is actually a phenomenon that I'm glad we're talking about because I've always been fascinated by it. This idea of there being a certain type of young male heartthrob that's very good when you're like 12 Mm -hmm. to 18, Like the Justin Bieber's, you know, the young boy band kind of look. The For me, it was Jonathan Brandis. That softness. And in a way, it's almost like we raise up young male performers who look kind of girly because they really appeal to girls when they're young. They feel non-threatening. And then when they age out of being a teen heartthrob, a lot of times they don't age in a way that makes them look like an adult male heartthrob. And then everybody, like, won't cast them again and their careers are over. And it's really a vicious, vicious cycle.
3: Well, and I, and I think it's the opposite for the the women, right? Like, the women, I think that we try to pump them up to make them older, even when they're younger, and make them more sexual.
2: Right. Like, we can't wait to make them grow up.
3: Yes. So it's interesting that dichotomy of, like, how boys and girls enter into this world. I also think, you know, from a point of view of... I guess Jim Henson, you know, is Jim Henson, or are the writers thinking like I'm Hoggle? You know, the girl I really like won't even look at me. You know, I'm I'm this other thing, and you know, they're just they want to get to the castle. They want to get to the other thing, and I I'm here yeah. and I'll help. And yeah, I may not be as great as this other person, but you know, there's there's an energy there. Like,
2: there'll be the popular guys mocking you, like, oh, if you can get yeah. a kiss, ha ha.
3: Yeah. I mean, this popular guy, what does he know about anything? I mean, he says that, you know, to take care of a kid, you got to slap it. Right? And that is, not a line in one <laughs> of the songs? Like, it's like, if you want to take your baby, slap him in the face. It's a, There's a line. Like, I think he does. <laughs> there's like a line that's like, uh, oh, gosh. Yeah, slap that baby to make him free. That's the line.
2: I mean, in a way, this question of coolness relates to something I was wondering about during the watching of this movie, which is I always just assumed that the Sarah character was also really cool. Yeah. I always assumed that she was really popular. You are know, like when her stepmom is like, yeah, go on a date, go on a date. I would just assumed, oh, she only doesn't have dates because she thinks young boys are beneath her. And now I'm like, wait, there's actually no evidence in the text for the idea that anybody thinks this girl is cool. But I'm just so indoctrinated by this idea that nerds have glasses on and they're not pretty, which is disturbing. But that's how I learned it from movies.
3: I want to bring you back one step too. Earlier in the podcast, you said, Oh, and you know, she's putting herself out there, she's auditioning for parts. Amy, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, She ain't auditioning for parts, she's out in the forest cosplaying by herself. It seems like she's <laughs> creating a world in which it didn't seem like, oh, she's working on a script, she's like she's just in a fantasy world with a dog. Like, she's not like it's not like oh, I'm like I'm running late from theater class, <laughs> she's putting on a costume and just LARPing.
2: Oh, I think you're right. Uh,
3: Yeah, I'm just saying, like, just to add to the idea that she's
2: not cool. I've always thought she has, like, she was in the school play or something, but there's no reason she would be. No, she, like, I mean, look at her room. She's got, like, a Muppet show
3: case of like dolls out there. She's like, you took, you took so-and-so. Uh, how dare you? Like <laughs> she's, ner- and by the way, I love a weirdo. I'm a weirdo. Weirdos are good, but it is funny. No,
2: so am I. So am I. I'm expressing this because I think I always was just like, Jennifer Connelly is so lucky and popular in this movie. And I'm appreciating no. realizing maybe she's not. And to that extent, I would say Ariel in the Little Mermaid is probably also a weird nerd like I was. I mean, she only hangs out with a baby fish. She's collecting weird shit in a cave when the other sisters are singing songs. Oh my God. These are both movies about teen girls who collect too much and then have to have everything get destroyed.
3: And what I think is so interesting about this movie is we live in a culture where fairy tales are often told where someone marries someone at the end, right? Or like you get the kiss, you get the, you find love. And this is something. Where the movie really tells you, like, the love that you find is in yourself. Like, you love yourself for the decisions that you make. It's not about, like, the, the prince isn't a prize, right? And, and that's really interesting. There is no date at the end. The date at the end is that she, I think, comes out of this, you know, I mean, I said it before, but loving herself more in a, in a way. And that's a stronger idea than anything else.
2: She has to come out of this, like, A- giving up her childish things, putting away her childish things, you know, no longer will she have a temper tantrum about her baby brother taking her teddy bear. She's actually going to have this breakthrough that her teddy bear and everything else she owns is just absolute garbage and it's time to to grow up.
5: And here's dear old Flopsy, you'll want her, right? There you go. Oh, yes. Ah, uh-huh. oh, yes. Charlie Bear. Right there. Charlie Bear for you. Mm-hmm. Huh? There was something I was looking for talk nonsense. It's all here. Everything in the world you've ever cared about is
2: all right here. And I have to say, I really appreciate that. And I also think a lot about how my generation coming out of this, I feel like we have been raised to be perpetual children who just always hold on to all of our things. And I find this scene really interesting going back because I think there was a time when we were supposed to put away all of our toys. And now almost everybody I know has a bunch of toys. Be- thanks to you, I have like a, a toy... LeBron James and a toy Anthony Davis still on my mantelpiece on my fire. You know, like... I love it. That we don't do this put away your toy thing necessarily anymore. That I think post-Labyrinth, we're like, keep them forever. It's fine.
3: The world that we create with our toys becomes a little bit of a version of our subconscious. Like, if you look at the room and... You know, this is where I'm bad, and I should probably keep better notes. But I think uh, you can look at her room and see all the things in her room are reflected in this. Oh yeah, dreamscape, right? She's like,
2: even got a book of the Wizard of Oz.
3: Exactly. So I feel like it's like her room is the world, and that also is Wizard of Oz as well. But this is even more defined. Like there is an M. C. Escher staircase in her room. There are these pictures, like you mentioned before, David Bowie. Like that's why this person looks this way. You know, this person that you know stole this, You know her mom away. She's also attracted to that person. Like, and one thing that's really interesting about this, which I'm realizing now, there's no moment that puts us in that world, right? There's no there's a wish, but like she doesn't get bonked on the head. She doesn't fall down the staircase. She doesn't fall asleep. She seems actively awake this entire time. And that seems to be like a different part of a fairy tale, right?
2: That's true. There's no, like, it was all a dream.
3: Right. It, but yet it clearly is her subconscious. But at the end, those characters are still like, hi, we're still here. But they'll always be there because her room is full of those things. Like, sh- her imagination isn't going away.
2: W- a I mean, to me, what that says is growing up doesn't mean you have to give up all elements of fantasy. I mean, if you think about it, you're Jim Henson. You spent your life playing with puppets, creating stories with puppets. yes imagination is great. And I like that it doesn't draw a divide between giving up fantasy worlds in order to grow up completely. Like she doesn't have to become like some sort of sober, boring person forever. You can be a well-rounded person. And I think that's in this movie.
3: That's really interesting as well, because it's not a movie that says throw away things of your youth. It really is be the person that you want to be, whatever that is. You want to be the, the, and again, I'm not, I'm using this term in a Derogatory way, like you want to be that weirdo out in the park, <laughs> running your 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 one person role play. Be that weirdo, and yeah, I'd be friends with that weirdo. She's cool, I- exactly. But if you want to be the person who is only interested in dating, be that person too. You could be whatever you want. Just be true to yourself. And at the end of this, the lesson learned isn't that she's going to make a change about who she is. It's about how she wants people to perceive her as well and giving people the benefit of the doubt. Like it's, it's, I think a lesson that most people don't learn until they get into like their late thirties or early forties, like, Oh, there is more here. There's more that I can uncover. Like if you let yourself be open to things and, and maybe that's, you know, part of like our culture wars in general right now is, is what's kind of going on is there are people out there that are saying, Let's hear out people. How do they want to be treated? What do they feel like? And there are other people going like, well, hey, we never asked them before. So why are we asking now? And why are we changing? You know, it's like, that's the, that's the rub, right? It's like, one is just saying like, I'm allowing myself to let you affect me and also be affected by you instead of just, I know the answer, I got this. And th- that's, I think, at the root of all culture, you know, like this old and young is, are always battling these two ideas and on many different fronts always. But that to me feels like being open, asking for help and saying what you want to do. I want to go to the castle, help me find the castle. I, I am lost is so much harder to do than say, I can't find a wall. Like, you know, she's not explaining herself fully. I feel like people don't want to expose themselves for not knowing everything. So they get mad when they're right. told.
2: They'd rather say piece of cake and then make yeah, everything worse. Exactly. I love that. And I mean, it It really is a lot of mature emotions that I think Jennifer Connelly does pretty well. I mean, the fact that she's 14 in this movie, I find really startling. Yeah. Because it seems more like she's 18 playing 14, you know, but yeah. she is just being straight, pure hearted. 14. And what she said about herself at this time of her life is, you know, she has had kind of a strange career up until this point. I mean, she's only 14. She's lived a lot of lives. You know, in interviews at this time, she's like, I'm not even intending to be an actor. It hasn't been one of my aspirations to be an actress. I sort of wanted to be a vet or I wanted to be a carpenter or something. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I never thought of being in films. So... I just really started with modeling because friends of my parents asked me if I wanted to. Then I started doing commercials. Then I went on a film audition, which was for Once Upon a Time in America. I think it was my first one, actually. I don't know. It just sort of happened. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I totally believe her that she wanted to be a carpenter, but she was doing all sorts of random stuff. She's, like, on the cover of magazines. She's kid. Yeah, so she's a 14-year-old doing a bazillion things. And what she says of herself at this moment looking back is she says... You know, I had a lot of years where I took it all for granted and I felt like kind of a walking puppet all through my adolescence. In that sentence, feeling like a walking puppet while doing this movie, I find that to have so much resonance, right? You know, yeah. like she's there's a risk when you're a, ch- a young child actor that people are just going to tell you where to stand and tell you what to do. And they're not even going to believe that you have the sentience to create that character yourself. You know, like I'm just going to poke you and you're going to giggle in this way and then we're right. going to go on
3: put the peanut butter in its mouth and make the horse talk. You know, it's like that idea of like, you're just treated like a, you know, a prop.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases.
3: Now, I do want to say this, because we've talked a lot about the giant thematic things going on in this movie. Can we just take a moment to talk about the puppetry of this movie? This movie is truly jaw-dropping in what we're seeing. I mean, we have puppets of all kinds. I want to get into the falling through the pit of hands, which is such like a Guillermo del Toro thing. I I am blown away that that we haven't seen. I mean, we've seen a little bit of that in like Pan's Labyrinth, but... The puppets here are amazing and they really are across all mediums because we have like some that are robotically controlled, which I think was something they we were really experimenting with at the time. We have some that are more traditional, uh, you know, Jim Henson puppets that are a little bit darker, a little bit creepier. But the way that they continue to find different ways and elevate the art form of puppetry is really amazing because each one of these characters has so much personality. Right, they 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 feel in a world where you're passing through like seven stone gods, or you're meeting you know uh, a 15 foot giant. Like everybody, you get them instantaneously, and I really feel like one thing that is so true. And look, there aren't that many puppeteers in the world. We can't say, oh well, the Jim Henson puppeteers are very different than the so and so puppeteers, you know. It, but there's something about these Jim Henson puppeteers where the personality of their performances really come through because the puppeteer and the puppet are are more one than, than I'm used to seeing. My cousin is uh, in the Henson program, and oh, she really? is amazing. And I love watching her perform and do all this amazing work with them. But I think that they really pride themselves on personality and talent, right? There's two different things. When I've worked with the Muppets in the past, very briefly, they're one and the same. I might have shared this story with you, but I was working with Waldorf and Statler from the Muppet Show, and the two puppeteers were um, had been around since Dark Crystal, and they and they started having a casual conversation with Waldorf and Statler on their hands. They were still in position, and they were talking to each other. It was one of the funniest things about how uncomfortable the puppets were. That they that they worked on Dark Crystal, but they were speaking as Waldorf and Statler talking about an old job. I, I was just like, Ugh. you know, I was I was truly uh, just blown away
2: by it. That is my dream. There's a secret spinoff version of Amy that is a puppeteer. Yeah, because I find it to be such a fascinating art form. If you ask my boyfriend, I'm always in our house doing hand puppets, just constantly. Yeah. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Puppeting, to me, is one of those art forms that's basically like dance or martial arts choreography where the people who just excel turn it into a form of storytelling, of, like, emotional storytelling as it's happening. And the puppets, at least, even have, like, the advantage of being able to talk. And I love even just thinking about it as a collaborative medium. You know, to do something like Ludo, you've got so many puppeteers working on that. To do... to do. To do Hoggle, you know, you have, I think, Sherry Weiser, the actor Sherry Weiser is inside Hoggle, but then you also have people controlling his face. You also have people controlling the hands because the hands were really hard to use. You have somebody else doing the voice. And it is this beautiful expression of, like, people on a set coming together to make one thing happen. In a way, a puppet is like a miniature movie of its own, telling a story with all of these people with a different band of skills, creating this one figure that creates this emotion inside of the audience. When I think about even just like the teamwork involved in doing something like, like the helping hands, the wall of hands—you know, the guys who talk oh. like this—stop
5: it! Help! What do you mean help? We are helping. <laughs> we are helping hands. You're hurting. Oh. Would you
2: like
0: us to let go?
2: <laughs> to have different combinations of people crowded together, putting their hands together, creating different forms. It took like a hundred in 50, I think, individual hands, so I guess that's, what, 75 people? 75 yeah. people on these five-raised platforms that it's like 45 feet high. There's 200 other hands that are all just foam rubber. And they're creating this world of imagination for us. I mean, if, the, if there's anything on this planet that represents the opposite spirit of artificial intelligence script writing, it is, you know, 150 people making people talk with their hands in not a single second of it not a single pixel being artificial and that is like beautiful teamwork That is that is hand-drawn animation but i guess like hand embodied animation i don't know why but it brings this feeling out of me of just like as if they're all holding hands and singing we are the world
3: i also think that there is this idea you get asked this a lot when you do sketch and comedy which is like let me ask you how much you guys smoking before you write that? And the answer is always none. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, it's like like this idea, like I watched it when I was high, so you must have been high. Like, But what I, what I love about that sequence is the idea of how they made those faces. It's like, these are artisans who you could tell. Like, I feel like I want to just watch a documentary on that. Like, how do we do this? How do we, you know, get into this position?
2: There are clips of that where Jim being like, oh, you can't, one person can't do both eyes because the eyes will be on the opposite sides. And being like, we need to, we need to have another hand in there for the nose. You can see little clips and it is fascinating. It takes like usually two or three people to make one set of hands and they're just figuring it all out together.
3: There is something so cool about these people. And, you know, I think it's, you know, I, I don't want to use this term because I think it, it it's probably thrown around too easily, but I love the weirdness of weirdos, right? Like, this is like, this is the the carte blanche that Jim Henson had by doing The Muppet Show and being super popular to make a $25 million movie where they can be like, I'm going to have a wall of hands, I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to make this movie that in retrospect, I think The Dark Crystal has gotten a lot of, um, I-, I love the new Dark Crystal uh, that was on Netflix. I thought it was really interesting and very deep and cool. Um, and I should rewatch the old one, but this is Jim Henson's A24 movie. If if the other <laughs> ones were like, you know, the Paramount film, like this is the A24. Like this is going a little bit further. This is doing weirder stuff. But the themes, as we talked about, like this should have been a no-brainer. There is humor in it. It's very funny. It's Alice in Wonderland, but with a better message in a way, right? Like it's a more empowering message. I think that the lasting effects of this movie, you can see it, it, defined a group of women that i think you probably say that are anywhere from uh early 30s to mid 40s you know like this is a movie that i i think it's interesting to talk about like is this a girl movie you know that that idea that we talk about this like is it i don't think it is but i also think it's this idea where wow i wonder if having a female lead here also complicates this for mass consumption
2: I do wonder that because I feel like, I mean, just from our own personal experience, the facts of it are when we do a movie that has a girl lead, we always get like, girl movie. There's always yeah. one or two dingbats. And I don't love to give the dingbats that much credit because I think, what's the point? You know, who yeah. cares? Who cares? But like, yeah, this knee jerk sense that if a movie stars a female lead who has any sort of femininity about her at all, that isn't just like, I'm a tough chick who beats up people, that it's right. a chick movie. So irritating. And I think so off base as well for something like this that I find dark and creepy across the board. So many interesting wrinkles in this. I mean, if you think this is a chick movie, you are missing out on some really amazing animation.
3: All right. I mean, yes, 100%. But let me play devil's advocate a little bit more and or not even devil's advocate. Let me just keep on pushing uh, down this well of hands. There is a point of view that you could argue that while this movie was critically reviled, it was maybe because many men don't can't connect to this story. This idea of no, don't let anyone know <laughs> this creepy thing that we could do to young girls, like like you know what I'm saying? Like, is there like is there a protection of that, or are we just simply so disconnected from it? You know what I'm saying? Am I like?
2: No, I do. I, know, I do know what you're saying. I mean, it's interesting because like the Gene Sisko review of this, which was a savage pan. Right. I'll read it, but what you'll hear as I read it is he doesn't r- talk about the f- female part of the story at all. He doesn't talk about the story at all. He talks about everything around the story. Jim Henson knows what he's doing with his Muppet characters on TV and in the movies, but he's completely at sea when he tries to create more mature entertainment in the form of such adventure films as The Dark Crystal and now Labyrinth. Both films are really quite awful sharing a much too complicated plot and visually ugly style supplied by the artist Brian Frude, whose creations look like the grotesque Garbage Pail Kids dolls. The pathetic story in Labyrinth is a young girl's search for her infant brother abducted by goblins, working for an evil spirit played by, of all people, David Bowie. It has been said many times before in the space that the sight of a baby in peril is one of the sleaziest gimmicks a film can employ to gain our attention. Bohenson does it, and that is almost unimaginable, considering the enormous amount of good he has contributed through Sesame Street. Maybe someone is advising him that you have to be more violent to grab the movie audience's attention. If so, that someone should be forced to watch Labyrinth 24 hours a day for a month. Wow. Equally pathetic is the film's attempts to, to reach the teenage audience through the presence and music of David Bowie, who looks as out of place in this film as if he were hosting the grand old Opry. And how about one more final surprise in Labyrinth? The executive producer of this mess is none other than George Lucas, who probably thought he owed Jim Henson and company a favor, considering his crew's involvement in the Star Wars trilogy. But Lucas's only contribution was to endorse and thereby grease the financing of the film. And for that, he misspent his clout. It matters little that Henson rips off Lucas's Wookiee character to help the young girl played by the forgettable Jennifer Connelly find her baby brother. What an enormous waste of talent and money is Labyrinth. One star wow his entire review and he calls this story pathetic but he actually doesn't talk about anything that it's really about except he doesn't think you should kidnap kids and that's it well by
3: the way let me just talk about that because i thought that was interesting the kid is never really in peril right like you you, what's the plan the plan isn't like oh i'm gonna drink the baby's blood i'm gonna turn the baby into a goblin like the baby is just held captive and to your point like while i thought it was really funny that the baby's like surrounded by goblins the baby doesn't seem in such utter distress like you know it doesn't seem like the baby is being treated or tortured no. in any way the baby is just like a macguffin to get her to fall in love with him
2: i almost have a theory that jareth was also a stolen baby so he's pretty nice to it like that's how he became mm. king they stole him they put him in there i mean how yeah he's a lot taller than the rest of the goblins
3: yeah to be that i mean I, but i guess there is a um an addendum, like a, a comic book addendum to show how Jareth became uh the Goblin King, which, if you've not seen a coronation of the Goblin King, you gotta go. <laughs> you gotta see it. Uh, I will tell you that it's really interesting because even at the end of the movie, she doesn't win back the baby. He disappears and that's it. She wakes up like the baby, like she doesn't grab the baby triumphantly, which is really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, it's not ta-da! Yeah, baby baby. The baby's just in his little crib and he gives, to be, I think, such a funny added sound effect, swallow. It's such a long, loud swallow. I decided to play that because I just love the idea of them being like, we have to show that the baby's fine. Let's record the sound of a baby swallowing and make it very, very loud. <laughs> but yeah, the baby is not in peril. The baby's not in peril. It, the baby, I guess okay, fine, maybe the baby will become a goblin forever. Maybe the, the baby is in peril, theoretically. But it's not, like, tied to a chair and even having its feet tickled.
3: I agree. I know. Yeah, there is something, like, I don't know. There, like, I, li- I like the simplicity of this, but I also understand how it could make people a little mental. Because is it even a triumphant ending at the end? I don't know. If you're looking for the straight-up, like, traditional fairy tale ending, it's not a fight scene. No one is rescued. Life goes back to normal because she learns the most important thing. You have no power over me.
2: And I mean, I will say as it's like building towards the climax, I don't love all of it. Like the chase scene goes on forever. The chase scene with all of the rocks. I think like 20 rocks had remote controlled cars in them or something. And that's how they're rolling around. The chase music is just so long. And I really zone out. I cannot... When a chase scene cuts around a lot like that, I just, I'm like, gone. Like, okay, you get 30 seconds if you're good, but if you take five minutes, I cannot even pay attention to this, especially when the music is just like.
3: And I agree with you. Like, there is. This is not a perfect film by any means. I I think that a movie like this is just a bunch of set pieces and I think a set pieces with puppets kind of get a little bit boring. You know, the only time I've really seen this done really effectively like multiple multiple set pieces is Dungeons and Dragons: The Honor Among Thieves, which is out now on VOD. But um
2: and has a portrait of you that's not you but it is you but it's not you.
3: Yes, I am not in the movie, but am I? Um and I do think that it's hard to keep it energetic and going forward without feeling repetitive. And there is something here where you're like, okay, and we're just, we're padding in like another 20 minutes of this movie, probably all throughout, just to get more puppets in, to justify the expenses, like you said, to do the extra rocks. So I do feel that like there is a little bit of fat. Like the story is done, but we're like, and yet another obstacle appears. You know, it feels very much like, uh, old school dickens like getting paid by the word like we're getting paid by the puppet like let's put a couple more puppets in here
4: there were 48 puppets on that set and 50 probably 52 53 puppeteers working at one time it's one room packed with puppets it was quite a feat actually getting that scene done it was great fun but real crazy real crazy we had so many people in it when you get all the puppets out of that set, it just looks like Swiss cheese. It's, you know, there's no set left. There's holes everywhere. People were walking around saying any minute the set's going to fall down.
2: Yeah, I mean, the number of puppets in this movie is wild. The extravagance of this movie, I love. The ballroom fantasy scene, she's got like 5,000 silk roses all around her. They went through 100 bags of glitter. They went through 10,000 candles for that scene. The extravagance of it, just, I love You know, the the George Lucas association of it all, they say like George Lucas did the first round of editing, probably like to Jim Henson, George Lucas kind of made it more action-y and then Jim Henson would make it more funny. And there's this kind of fight, I guess, back and forth for the tone of this movie that I feel like started in the very beginning. You know, the very first version of the script was like the Terry Jones one. You know, Terry Jones, of course, we talked about him, co-directed Holy Grail. He was the medievalist of the Monty Python group. He also has, you know, Already, already by this point had like written kids' books on fairy tales and Vikings. And it was Jim Henson's daughter, Lisa, who recommended to Jim Henson that Terry Jones might be the guy to do this movie because she had read his kids' books about fairy tales. So again, we have like a daughter, just like in Wonka, telling a dad, like, hey, here's a thing. Here's a partnership that y'all should do. Check this out. Yay, young girls who read. But he apparently wrote a version of this script that was... A little darker where Jareth just really had like straight up stolen her and, you know, took her away to the center in that you never saw the center of the labyrinth. You didn't do any of these like cuts to Jareth singing in the middle In that it was more of like an action fight scene. At the end, he is revealed to be just like this weak sauce goblin like to Terry Jones. He wanted it to be almost more Oz-like, I guess, like when she gets to the center of this labyrinth. She realizes that he's not powerful and that he's somebody who uses the labyrinth to keep people from getting to his heart. Mm. And when David Bowie read this script, he thought it was interesting, but he thought it needed more funniness and he thought it probably needed a little bit more Bowie and Jim Henson agreed. So then they redid it again and then Elaine May took the final crack at it a year before she did Ishtar. And that is why I think there are so many tones and different interests in it you know, Jim Henson is a very different creator than George Lucas is. And Terry Jones is very different from Elaine May. And all of these people put a hand on this movie. It kind of makes me think of Casablanca. Da-da-da-da, when a movie has this many people involved, I think it does become something really interesting. I, I love celebrating movies that work outside of just the one artist auteur theory. Yeah. As much as I like those movies too. I think these movies are so interesting to explore.
3: I think that, Oftentimes, when you have so many voices in a film, it can muddy the process. But here, I think it almost shaved off everybody's bad instinct, right? Like, it's like, well, if you do that, like, everyone got a little bit in there, but look, it still failed. But I think the reason why it exists so much is because it has the core group of imagination at play. But then, you know, George Lucas is not a funny person. And so you get a little bit of that humor. You get like the the power of David Bowie to say, I'm going to, I want a little bit more of this. Like everybody was able to paint with their own brush, but it wasn't a big mess. And I do think that that is very rare. I don't think that that often happens. I don't think that that's the recipe for something great, but I do think that that's the recipe that often happens in television You know, as people kind of find something. I think it's something that does happen in animation as well. You know, but live action, it's a little bit more tricky. But this one, it worked. You know, I don't know. I agree.
2: And I think there's something in it where when it's wonky by choice, it still works. Like, there are parts of this movie that I actively am like, ouch, that hurts my ears and I don't like it. Like, when she goes to meet those kind of wacky fireball creatures who keep ripping off their head. Right. When I listen to that song, I'm like, this song is Good, but it also really sucks. It's also really discordant. Like they're singing in a way that is, to me, hostile and strident and deliberately ugly. Right. And there's the ugliness of it that kind of factors into making it work. But then I feel like I'm talking to myself in circles. And I'm like, it's bad, so it's good. So it's bad, so it's good. And I'm like, what am I talking about ultimately? Is it good or bad? And I don't know. I honestly don't know sometimes when it comes to Labyrinth. <laughs> I think this movie
3: is bold. I think this movie is interesting. I don't know if this is a perfect movie, but I'm so glad it exists. I'm so interested to see like such an imaginative thing. You know, in many respects, I think this is Pan's Labyrinth shares a lot of similarities with this. And maybe Pan's Labyrinth is the upgraded version of it. I don't even know if Pan's Labyrinth fits in the pantheon of one of the greatest movies of all time. But I think what it does do is it creates imagery. It creates a fantasy world unlike any other. And that, to me, is what I'm really hanging my hat on here. I really like a lot of this movie. I don't think it's perfect, but I do think it is one of the most inventive films that we've seen.
2: You have said Pan's Labyrinth so much that now I'm thinking we should probably do Pan's Labyrinth.
3: I was wondering if it was going to be, you know, too, too samey, but I'm down to talk about that because I think it would be interesting to look at them together. I mean, do you see that similarity there? I mean, few, I mean, it's a Labyrinth, Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth, and Labyrinth. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I remember disliking it the first time I saw it, warming up to it a little more the second time I saw it, and now being curious how I'd feel about it today. So let's flag that. Let's put a pin in that.
3: All right, I like that. You know, I mean, look, you and I also share a love for secession. And I've been thinking that, you know, we need to watch the celebration because then when Jesse Armstrong pitched secession, his uh like his elevator pitch was it's a celebration meets Dallas. Okay,
2: deal. We can also do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I do want to play, though, before we leave our labyrinth conversation, because this made me laugh so much. You know, David Bowie's amazing ball juggling in this yes. movie. He's like moving the balls around and around and around. I almost feel like the balls in a way also look like Linda's ball in Wizard of Oz. But so I go. The way they did those balls is that they had a juggler named Michael Motion who was hiding behind him kind of like a puppet and doing the hand for him, which was very complicated. The way he had to hold his body to do the juggling, very difficult. He couldn't see what he was doing because David Bowie had to be in front of him.
4: We wanted to use Michael's right arm to be David's arm. We set it up with a stand-in for David so he could rehearse and, and rehearse and rehearse and try to get this move. We had to have Michael down behind David and he had to be leaning down so that he wouldn't be in the camera shot. He's now working totally blind.
1: 372, take six.
4: When we shot that scene with David, he was incredibly patient.
3: Wait! I have a better plan.
4: You going. Ready?
2: action. Wait! I've got a much better plan. (laughs) I wanted to play a tiny clip of them doing the juggling scene. This is the one where he's holding three balls and he's juggling them in front of her outside.
3: (laughs) I had fun. It was was very amusing. Um, I don't think Michael, Michael Motion, the
4: um, juggler, had much fun. It It was agonizing for him.
2: Because you can just hear how hard it was and how much he keeps dropping the balls. And I find it very, very funny.
3: (laughs) I wondered about that. I guess the question is, what is next for the two of us? I mean, we have Pan's Labyrinth on the table, but there's some other things that are coming up too that I think would be interesting.
2: You know, though, what I think fits in this, which I think as we're talking about it, has the balls, has the girl on a mission exploring her emotions. Mm -hmm. I think we should do Pixar's Inside Out.
3: Ooh, I really like that because an Elemental, which is coming out, has something that makes me feel like it's in the same vein as this. So I'm, I'm interested. I'm down to play with this. All right, let's do Inside Out. I just rode on the Inside Out uh, ride yesterday at Disneyland, so I feel really equipped to talk about this.
2: <laughs> okay, deal. All right, let's go Inside Out. So how was the first day of school? It was fine, I guess. I don't know.
0: Do you ever look at someone and wonder, what is going on
5: inside their head? Did you guys pick up on that? Sure mm-hmm. did. Something's wrong. We're going to find out what's happening, but we'll need support. Signal the husband. <clears throat> With a nice pass over <clears throat> <to> Greece, <throat> comes across right. <clears throat> Uh-oh, she's looking at us. What did she say? What? Oh, uh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, We left the toilet seat up. What, what is it, woman, what? Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school?
2: You gotta be kidding kidding me. For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot?
3: Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find The Unspooled Show, and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com.